You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Open Concessions podcast presented by Toyota, featuring a weekly in-depth conversation with a Chicago Cubs-related personality, and sometimes we veer a little bit. We are your hosts. I'm Len Casper, alongside Jim Deshays. We make up the Cubs' television tandem, and uh, we've got a fun one today, J.D., Dan Epstein and Brad Baluchian. We're going to take a little trip down memory lane and talk about, I guess, our favorite baseball decades, right? The 70s for you as a kid, and for me, the 80s. Yeah, um, right in my wheelhouse as a fan, the 70s baseball is what I grew up watching. I remember, you know, the all-star games were, were musty. I would sit and watch uh, games on television with, with the scorebook uh, as, as a young guy. And then, of course, the, the 86, those are all my contemporaries. That was my first full year in the big league. So two very interesting uh, guys and uh, very interesting approaches to their books. Dan Epstein is an award-winning journalist, pop culture, uh, history guy, avid baseball fan. He has written Big Hair and Plastic Grass, A Funky Ride Through Baseball and America in the Swinging 70s, and Stars and Strikes, Baseball and America in the Bicentennial Summer of 76. Brad Baluchian is the director of Merritt College's New Natural History and Sustainability Program, uh, like Dan has written uh, for Rolling Stone, among other publications. And his new book is called The Wax Pack, the story of Brad tracking down all the players in a single pack of Topps baseball cards from 1986, uh, including our buddy Rick Sutcliffe. And uh, the one thing I'll say before we start, J.D., is uh, Dan and Brad, um, they're not the same age. Dan's a little older. He's uh, more your era. Uh, Brad is younger, but uh, they kind of come at it from a s- similar perspective. Yeah, and uh, they, they they seem to be kindred spirits, and um, I you know you've read the books, I have not. I've been able to preview them a little bit, so they're at the top of my shopping list now. Absolutely, here we go. Let's enjoy Dan Epstein and Brad Baluchian. Dan and Brad, it's uh, great to have both of you with us. Uh, Dan, how you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing fine. Uh, Missing baseball, but uh, it's coming back uh, sooner than later, which is good. Uh, Brad, thanks for joining us. How are you? Thanks for having me, Len. I'm doing well. Well, I um, am a big fan of uh, of both of you, and uh, I've read uh, one book each. Uh, I have Stars and Strikes, uh, which Dan sent to me, and uh, it We'll get into 1976 a little later and, and why you chose that particular year uh, in baseball history. But um, I guess, Dan, the, the big question for you would be, what is it about 1970s baseball uh, that grabbed your heart? Was it simply that's the time when you were young and baseball did grab your heart? <laughs> well, that's part of it, certainly. I mean, I was 10 years old in 1976. So, um, you know, I, that was the era I came up as a fan. But I think it, some of it also had to do with um, probably in the late 90s, around the time of the Sosa Maguire home run chase, uh, I started thinking a lot about how different baseball had become uh, from the era that I'd grown up in and and realized you know, as I started looking for books on the era uh, on the, of the 70s, just because I wanted to understand it more, I realized that there hadn't been much coverage of it. And the historical coverage of the era had tended to be, uh, tended to view it as this this kind of um, a weird, um, you know, sort of bump uh, kind of anomaly uh, that you know, that that was probably best not looked at too closely because, you know, it was filled with, you know, things like uh, rebellion and drugs and uh, fan riots and, and, and all of that. And, and I really just, just felt like, you know, that there's more, you know, that, that there's, it was an incredibly rich decade culturally, as well as in terms of baseball. 
and that uh, the game really needed to be looked at, the game of the 70s really needed to be looked at through a uh, kind of pop cultural lens. And Brad, we'll certainly dive into your literal and figurative journey uh, during the Wax Pack, but there are a lot of players, most of them in your 1986 Tops Pack, whose careers began in the 1970s. So it really meshes uh, the two authors together really well. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, one of the things about the players in the Wax Pack is I think all of them played about at least 10 years aside from Jaime Kokenauer. So a lot of these guys, their careers began in the late 60s, early 70s. So your journey, um, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but um, we kind of gave the the synopsis of of the book. I, I love the idea. What was your big goal when you set out on this journey to to talk to all of these players and ex players, I should say, uh, and and all the detours you took uh, ended up probably making the book much better than you thought it would be, right? Yeah, I know. It's um, you know, I, one of the one of the great things about projects like these is that you don't really know what you're going to get going in, which actually makes it really hard to sell a book because, you know, the the gatekeepers in the publishing industry are so risk averse that they want you to tell them upfront exactly what's going to happen and what it's about and what you're going to find. And, you know, I would say, well, look, I mean, my goal is to find all these guys to do a kind of where are they now to find out what happens after they're done playing. But until I get on the road, I'm not going to know all the themes that come out. And, you know, sure enough, the best themes in the book were things that I didn't anticipate, like the father-son relationship and things like that. So, um, but I do think it's it's better for the chase, you know, for not necessarily having all the guys be cooperative and helpful. It it adds a lot of narrative tension and conflict, and you know, every every good story needs to have that ebb and flow emotionally and narratively. And so, by having some guys not want to talk to me, that actually makes it a stronger book. I've got uh, uh, two for you, Brad. Um, one, um, and am I correct that I read that you, you were rejected 37 times? Something 38. Like that? 38. 38 times. Yeah. That's good for you, man. Bully for you for the perseverance. And two, this is a come and clean moment. Did you open a pack and go, Oh, these guys are boring. I'm going to open up another pack, and that's going to be my story. <laughs> whenever I got whenever I got Jim Deshays, I was like, "Put that back. We need another pack. Yeah, we need we need to move on." No, I um, there is a footnote in the book where I say that I did open several packs um, because if I just open, I mean, I would have loved to just open one, and that would be the the one and only. But you know, what if I got five guys that were dead, or you know, everyone yeah. in Indiana or something? So. Um, I did end up picking a pack that had all but one player that was still alive and that they were spread out around the country. Dan, in uh, Big Hair and Plastic Grass, uh, I mean, the, the, the title says it all, but going <laughs> back to your, your opening remark about the culture in the 1970s, it hit baseball in a big way. I mean, if you just turn on a game from 1974 and you look at the uniforms and the hairstyles alone, it really does say a lot about that decade culturally in general, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think if you look, if you compare that game from 1974 to a game from, you know, just five years earlier, 1969, uh, it, it you would see so much difference, you know, in terms of the the uniforms, in terms of the way the players wear their hair, in terms of you know the surface on the uh, on on the playing field, uh, in terms of you know, if you're watching an American League game, there's a designated hitter now. If you're, you know, and so much of the of the way the players players comported themselves on the field changed in just a few years. I mean, there was, as I say in Big Hair and Plastic Grass, I mean, this was a this was a time where players finally felt comfortable with letting their freak flags fly, and uh, and I think so much of that is you know is related was related to what else was happening in America at the time. You, you write a lot about uh, disco demolition uh, in 1979. And the one thing I really uh, appreciated about your analysis of what happened uh, at Comiskey Park is that it was nuanced. And uh, Steve Dahl is, is 
is a friend of mine, so full disclosure there. Um, but it, at the time, was treated as though it had some racial uh, uh, undertones and overtones. And essentially, Steve was just like, no, it was just kind of a gimmick. Yeah, and, and I think it still is uh, um, perhaps even more so viewed through that, uh, that lens today. And, and I think there were certainly elements of that, not in Steve's intention, perhaps, but in you know, the people that an event like that would attract, and certainly in the uh, feeling, you know, the anti-disco sentiment at the time. A lot of it uh, in, in America was sort of well, this is, you know, this is black music and it's supplanting rock and roll, which, you know, of course, is based on black music, but uh, people weren't uh, thinking in those terms. And uh, but but I think there was there was an element of that, you know, disco had completely saturated popular culture at that point. You look at any J.C. Penney ads from the summer of 79 and there's disco fashions and there's disco toys and there's, you know, disco everything. And uh, and even as somebody who was a disco fan in the summer of 79, I remember thinking like, you know, geez, does every song have to be about dancing? Do, you know, can, can, can we mix this up a little here? Maybe and, one about and, roller skating? Maybe throw yeah, exactly. Roller right, right. I think there were there were two different roller disco movies in the summer of 79. And, and uh, you know, so, so yeah, the, there were there were a lot of different elements feeding into it. And then, of course, there was the like, Wow, you know, we, you know, as certainly as a 13-year-old boy in the summer of 79, like, you know, what excited me more than things being blown up and people running out onto a baseball field and, you know, throwing clumps of dirt around. Like, I thought that was cool. And so did a lot of other people. And and obviously, you know, there were there were some some uh pretty uncool elements to it uh, to it all as well, but you know, it it's I don't think it serves uh, I don't. Th- I don't think it serves the event or or history well to just say, well, this was this, and this is, you know, th- this one reason was was why this all happened. And to kind of tie uh, the two stories together, Brad, um, in terms of race and baseball, uh, several guys you talked to that came up, uh, in particular, the story of Gary Templeton. Yeah. Um... As I was saying earlier, not knowing the themes that were going to come out in the book, I didn't realize what a what a role race would play in in the book. And getting to Templeton, he was probably the the most unexpected surprise or the the biggest surprise in terms of kind of what I expected him to be like versus what he was like, because in reading the media coverage from The Times, his era, you know, I thought he might be more aloof, um, but he was super engaging and and uh, super outgoing and friendly and uh, and to the point where he, you know, I went over to his house and we were watching kung fu movies and you know <laughs> talking to his wife and um, meeting his family and you know going out to eat and all this. Um, but as part of that, I mean, the I guess the the main focus of that chapter is his side of the story from the Whitey Herzog incident in 1981 that came to unfortunately define a lot of his career. And when you read the whole story behind that, you really realize the, you know, the, the, the context of those times and how hard it was to be a black player back in the seventies and eighties, uh, how much racism still played a, a big role uh, in the game. And so I was, I was glad to be the, the messenger for that. And as I look at, you know, the rest of your group, um, it, it's a it's a really fascinating uh, group of guys. Um, again, I don't want to give away uh, the ending to the story, but uh, there's a Hall of Famer in there uh, involved who you uh, spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get to. And you use some um, unconventional and unorthodox ways and means to try to talk to some of these players, including taking a tour. Uh, of the uh, ballpark in Houston. And uh, I don't know if you ended up buying a house on a golf course in Florida, but that was your uh, disguise, so to speak, to to try to get to Carlton Fisk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was a few million short of being able to do that. Um, but, and, and, you know, feel free to, um, to, I mean, there's no spoilers to me in terms of talking about Carlton Fisk or what happens in the book or the different, the different people. But um, yeah, I, um, I, 
we, you know, I really looked at the, the way that I was trained in, in journalism was in the sort of the, the new journalism tradition from the sixties and the, the, or, you know, call it literary nonfiction where people like Tom Wolfe and Gaetalese doing this years ago, where you're as the writer, you're an active participant in the story. And so that's what I do in the wax pack. And um, when certain guys like Carlton Fisk or Gary Pettis, you know, weren't, weren't able or willing to talk to me, I, I then decided to make that part of the story. And I write about um, those, you know, all the different extremes that I went to, to try to get to them. And from the first person perspective and sort of what it was like to be in my shoes. Um, and it's a, it's a technique or a style that's not done that much anymore, but I, I really, you know, it's the technique that I always wanted to do. Um, but I'm curious, like, uh, since we have Jim Deshays here, if, if Jim, if you were one of the players in the pack, how do you think you would have responded to me call, cold calling you and saying, Hey, I want to, uh, I want to meet up with you. You're one of the players in this pack. Yeah. I, I would have been intrigued for sure, and I would have—I'm I'm sure I would have um, made time to sit down and, and chat. And that was—that was my question for you. Those that didn't, uh, what reasons did they give? Did they just not trust that you were a legit journalist, or just didn't want to make the time? What was the—what was the excuse? Well, uh, it varied. So with Gary Pettis, that's what Len was just talking about when I went to the ballpark tour in Houston. You know, he's the third base coach for the Astros, and. Uh, so I worked, he was the only guy that was still in major league baseball. And so I had, I knew I'd have to kind of go through official channels once I struck out, um, trying to go directly to him. And so the Astros PR people basically said, well, AJ Hinch has said that, uh, he's not allowing any of the coaches to talk to the media this year. Wow. And so he just said, you know, it's, it's, it's off the table. Someone like Carlton Fisk, um, just through his agent, his, you know, he was, he was one of the few players that still has people to, um, to go through. And so his people said, uh, no, he's just not interested, uh, without really offering an explanation. So, you know, the, the reasons varied depending on the guy. Hmm. Dan, in terms of the decade of the seventies, uh, you could argue Fisk's home run uh, in the 75 World Series was kind of the best baseball moment. Um, Oscar Gamble's hair, maybe a second. Uh, <laughs> what would you say was the best baseball moment of that decade? I mean, for me, it's it's Hank Aaron uh, breaking Babe Ruth's home yep, run. There you go. Yep. I think I think that's that. And, you know, and, and unfortunately, and, and I think, you know, and this is one of the reasons I wrote Big Hair in Plastic Grass was because I felt that that generally the 70s had been distilled down to Hank Aaron's record-breaking home run, Carlton Fisk's game six uh, home run in 75, you know, and maybe Pete Rose's hitting streak in 78. And that, you know, and then that, that was kind of, well, let's move on here. Uh, so, uh, but, but really, I mean, I think certainly, you know, on so many levels that that's such a resonant moment, uh, Hank Aaron, uh, you know, hitting 715. And and for me, you know, as a young baseball fan, like I didn't really 74 was a little bit before I really got into baseball. But I just remember the excitement around that. I remember, you know, watching the highlights on TV and just like, you know, knowing that I was living through history. And that was so exciting. And I mean, even before I got into baseball, I was a big fan of history, American history. And so that that just you know was I mean to my not even eight year old brain that was just a moment of like wow like I got to be alive to see this and this is so cool and you know what is it uh, forty six years later I I still think it's incredibly cool that that uh, we got to witness that yeah I have um when 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 Hank was getting close um, you know we tried to pay attention as much as we could so just for context I was fourteen in nineteen seventy four. Sure. And we had a little um, cassette player that we put next to the television with a microphone on so we, we could record the broadcast of the game. And I think it's either 714, 715. I'm pretty sure it was 15. Well, Kurt Gowdy, we had Kurt Gowdy on the call on television. I think the call everybody hears now is Milo Hamilton's, uh, there's a new home run champion, blah, blah, blah. 
But that was like, yeah, as a kid, you're like locked in and you're recording this and you're keeping scorebooks. And I mean, it's, it, you know, you're in that sweet spot, you know, probably from the age of, I don't know, nine to, to 14 before, you know, what you start to think about girls or, you know, get closer right. to driving cars. And, and but I mean, you're locked in, right? Absolutely. And, and, and yeah, and, and, and I mean, that, that was, I mean, for me, it was also like between 10 and 14 that I was really, you know, that was before I really got into music. That was before I really, you know, write girls, obviously, uh, and, and, uh, you know, got, got kind of pulled away from the game, but, but yeah, I mean, I was living, living and breathing every broadcast I could, I could experience every box score I could get my hands on. I mean, I was just you know, in full on absorption mode, uh, between 1976 and 1980. So, uh, for, for big hair and plastic grass that, you know, writing that book was a lot of, you know, me channeling the enthusiasm I felt for the game in those years. And then going back to the first part of the decade and seeing, okay, how did, how did these years inform what I experienced uh, from 76 to 1980? Doc Ellis, and Mark Fidrich, uh, two uh, the great characters in baseball history, and very much a part of uh, that decade in uh, both of your books. Yes, and and uh, r- really because seventy six uh, is the you know that's the year of the bird, uh, and so obviously he he's a major character in Stars and Strikes, uh, as well as uh, one of the cover boys for Big Hair and Plastic Grass, and Doc Ellis. Uh, you know, obviously we. You know, he's kind of gone down in history as the guy who who threw the no hitter under the influence of LSD. But there's really a lot more to him and and his story than that. And and 76 is the year that he's traded to the Yankees and actually helps them win their first pennant since 1964. And and also has a showdown with uh, Reggie Jackson, who's who's uh, doing his uh, sabbatical in Baltimore that year. So I, I it, it was fun for me to be able to kind of uh, show that uh, that chapter of Doc's life in Stars and Strikes. We have more threads here, and uh, I'll start with Dan, and we'll go to Brad. Um, how important, Dan, was it for the Yankees and the Dodgers to kind of reassert themselves as two of the best in baseball in the late 1970s? Because you had the A's, you had the Reds, you had the Pirates, the Orioles. Uh, those were kind of the dominant teams in the first half of that decade. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that we were thinking so much in terms of you know big market versus small market teams back then, but but I mean, it, just as a, as a fan, and and I was a bit of a Dodger fan back then because my mom was living in Los Angeles, uh, but it was again just as as a as a fan with some sense of baseball history it's like wow how cool it's dodgers versus yankees again just like when my dad you know who my dad grew up as a brooklyn dodgers fan so this was just like you know to me this was the this was the rivalry you know all over again even though uh uh dodgers were now in los angeles and 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 both of those teams were very different uh both filled with very interesting characters uh both you know, played very different kinds of baseball. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the 77 and 78 World Series were so exciting and so, uh, so, so gripping. And, and, and I have to feel like that pulled a lot of people back to the game who may have, uh, you know, been on the sidelines for a while there. And, and Brad, uh, <clears throat> one of your subjects, uh, Steve Yeager. And uh, I don't know if there was trepidation, but you had read and heard about um, kind of a, a bigger than life personality that that he was and really still is to this day, and uh, I found that chapter to be absolutely terrific. Thanks. Yeah, Jaeger. Um, the in the research that I did on him, you know, he comes across as this uh, you know confident, outgoing, kind of boisterous guy, and and I found him to be that way. But I think what the the really nice thing about that chapter is the the unexpected part, which is where he really talks about um, a lot of personal things about how uh, his father was such an alcoholic that he, when he went to watch him play in Cincinnati, he passed out in the clubhouse, and so he never really wanted to, you know, have his dad come to games again. Um, and how when he was 
unsigned as a free agent in 1987 during the whole collusion scandal, uh, how he, he didn't even have, he couldn't even turn the TV on to watch baseball because it hurt so much. And he dumped out every drop of alcohol in his house in 1987, the first year he was retired and never drank again. Um, you know, these things are, the fact that he was willing to open up and be vulnerable and share those really personal things, uh, I think is, that's really kind of the heart of my book is with a lot of these guys is their ability, their, the, the courage it, it, it takes for them to open up and share those things. And, you know, to me, that's what makes my interest in, in these players to begin with was their heroism, but that was their, you know, their heroism on the baseball field and, you know, these larger than life people or figures, what makes them heroic in the wax pack is nothing to do with baseball, but, but who they are as people and their willingness to, to deal with their own, their own demons and their fear and their, and to be vulnerable. Yeah. JD, you can chime in here. Um, we have a lot of friends and you have former teammates who were bigger than life, who have, let's be honest, enormous egos, but they're also incredibly generous and kind and fun. Um, but in a lot of ways, you cannot have an industry like this where the best in the world who make a ton of money and have all the fame in the world, it comes with the territory, right? You're not going to have, you know, 300 of the humblest human beings <laughs> in baseball at any given time. That's just no, not how it works. No, and I think a lot of guys, it's that, it's that confidence that drives them, that, that gets them to the, the highest level. And I also think the game changes people. My recollection when I got done playing, I remember reflecting at some point after I retired and thinking, well, that was weird. Like you're this one person <laughs> up until that point. Then you enter this industry that's very unique and different and a lot that comes with it. And you, so you go for this merry ride and it's crazy and it's wonderful uh, and heartbreaking at times. And then you get done and then you revert back to, you know, for me, it's a small town knucklehead from Northern New York. And it's just um, and another great example is years ago when I was broadcasting in Houston, we had Jeff Kent on after, you know, his playing days were done and they were doing a bobblehead celebrating Kent. And the whole time he was with us down in Houston as a player when I was broadcasting, I mean, he was just miserable and ornery and, and you couldn't get two words out of him. And it was just, oh, my goodness. And so Bill Brown and my partner and I, we joked in anticipation of Kent's appearance. Oh, we're not, this guy's not going to say a word to us. And he got on the air and he was the best guest we ever had. I mean, he was yucking it up. He was funny. He was engaging. And I just looked at him. I go, dude, <laughs> who are you? Where did this come from? <laughs> I just, yeah, you know, my wife used to give me a hard time all the time, said you got to be nicer to people, but <laughs> I needed to be that way to compete every day. And not everybody has to do that, but some guys do. So we get this perception of them as being ornery or aloof or whatever, and they're just playing a role in, in many ways. They're just protecting themselves from, from the outside. Yeah, and I think, Brad, that's why the guys who are the, I guess, farthest removed from the game were probably the easiest to wrangle. And, and the guys who are still kind of close to the game, not so much, because you do get in that bubble and you tend to tune everything out. Uh, did you find that to be the case in general? The guys who are kind of more comfortable with their life, those were the easy peasy guys? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question about identity, right? Um, I make this point towards the end of the book that most ballplayers, unlike the rest of us, have two lives, kind of what Jim was just saying. There's your baseball life, which ends around age 35. And then there's, okay, now the rest of my life. Um, for most of the guys that were not big stars, it's a little bit easier because they can fade back into the general population. Now, if you're uh, Carlton Fisk or Dwight Gooden or Vince Coleman, you know, just to men mention three of the guys in my book that were, that were really hard to get to talk or to work with, uh, I think part of that challenge is because they've, continued on in their identity as the baseball player, Carlton Fisk, right? And mm -hmm. they haven't had the opportunity to shed that identity. Um, I think it's possible, but I think when you reach that level of fame and success and money, it, there's a very addictive quality to that, you know, and you, it's a lot harder to let go of that. If you, you know, or you know that as Dwight Gooden, you can continue to 
sign your autograph and make a hundred bucks 30 years after you're done playing, you know, it's tempting to do that, even if it may actually not be in your own best interest to continue in that identity. Great stuff with Brad Baluchian and Dan Epstein. We will continue after a quick word from our sponsor. Here's to the road ahead. Trust Toyota to be here for you. A Toyota hybrid will give you the confidence to go farther than ever. Enjoy advanced tech in the Camry hybrid. Load up the family in the roomy Highlander hybrid or adventure in the RAV4 hybrid, the best hybrid SUV for the money. Right now, get 0% financing on every Toyota hybrid. All from the brand you trust. Today, tomorrow, Toyota. View U.S. News Best Cars at cars.usnews.com on 2020 hybrid models. Terms available on approved credit through participating dealers and Toyota Financial Services. Not all customers will qualify. Void where prohibited. Offer ends July 6th, 2020. Dan, we mentioned the Yankees. Uh, George Steinbrenner is prominent uh, in uh, Big Hair and Plastic Grass, as is Reggie Jackson, who actually did have a big league career before he became a Yankee, but it got a lot more interesting when he hit New York. <laughs> it, it really did. I mean, I feel like Reggie is is the quintessential player of the 1970s. I think he is, uh, I mean, su- such a charismatic character in him in, in and of itself but also he is kind of emblematic of of you know something you saw in the the 70s more than you'd seen before which is the the black superstar who is you know confident in his own views and you know will you know say whatever he wants to the press and doesn't feel like he has to toe any kind of any kind of line in terms of uh, self-expression uh and also i mean this was a guy who with the game on the line you wanted him at the plate whether you know it was during his years with the uh, oakland a's mustache gang um or whether it was you know uh in the in the in the world series with with the with the yankees in 77 and 78 i mean this is a guy who uh, he he won five World Series rings in the 70s. Uh, the first one, 72, he was actually out of action uh, with a with a, a, a hamstring injury. But, uh, you know, because of what he'd done during the season in 72, that was a big part of why the A's uh, made it that far uh, to the World Series. Um, and this is a guy who, you know, he was he was on. Let's see, five uh, division winners with uh, with the A's, two uh, two division winning teams uh, in the seventies with the Yankees. I mean, he he was always right there in the thick of it. Of course, uh, with Reggie, you also got controversy, and you got uh, him locking horns with uh, with uh, Charlie Finley, uh, the owner of the Oakland A's, and with George Steinbrenner. You had him locking horns with Thurman Munson of the Yankees. Uh, with several of his uh, teammates on the A's and the Yankees. And, uh, you know, that there was just always, he was always making headlines one way or another. I have to be honest, and one great thing about uh, Big Hair and Plastic Grass is YouTube, because I found myself getting halfway through uh, a story and I would have to go find the incident <laughs> on YouTube. And, um, and JD, I don't, I'm sure you've seen this a million times too. And Brad, if you have, you can say I didn't feel like he loafed on that base hit to right, uh, after which he and Billy Martin really had it out in the dugout at Fenway Park. Um, Reggie seemed to have a pretty good explanation of why he kind of laid back on the ball. Um, so it, it tells me that there was a lot under the surface there, that it wasn't just about that play. Is that fair to yeah. say, Dan? Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, and some of it wasn't really even Reggie that, that uh, Billy had a problem with. Billy was also engaged in, you know, constant war with George Steinbrenner and really resented the fact that Steinbrenner wouldn't listen to Billy uh, when it came to, you know, players that Billy thought should be added to the Yankees. Billy didn't want Reggie on the Yankees in 77, but it wasn't just because he didn't like Reggie. It was because he he really wanted Joe Rudy. He He felt that the Yankees... The 76 Yankees had a really good chemistry uh, filled with players, you know, who were really kind of hard-nosed and nosed and played the Billy way. 
but he, you know, but they just didn't quite have enough bats or arms. So Steinbrenner uh, in the off season went and signs, uh, he went and signed Don Gullett uh, to add to the pitching staff and he signed Reggie uh, over Billy's objections. So as it was, and, and this was, you see this with other players like Kenny Holtzman, who came to the Yankees in in this trade uh, during the '76 season with, with uh, Baltimore it was like a massive 15 player trade, and and Billy felt like you know he hadn't asked for Kenny Holtzman. He resented George making that trade without his uh, input, and so he was just going to sit. Holtzman on the bench as much as possible, and you know this is this is obviously not a great way to to manage a ball team, but uh, but but this was you know so, so I mean obviously there was a lot of uh, a lot of bad feeling between Reggie and Billy, but a lot of it had its roots in you know Billy feeling like he was getting uh, you know he was not allowed to be to have the control over the way the team was built that he wanted. Your uh... Your 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 career as a big leaguer, JD. You're, you're connected to the Astros. That's where you spent most of your time and had your most success. But um, I I know you and I have talked a lot about your your Yankee upbringing, uh, playing with John Elway, playing for Yogi and, and Billy briefly. Uh, I know it's cool for you, right, to kind of have been a part of that circus, kind of near the end of it. But um, some of the cool stories you've told about how Billy uh, dealt with all the craziness in New York. Yeah, it was just, uh, you know, you're coming up through that uh, system and you hear all the stories and then you get there. And my time in New York was very, very brief. I got just a glimpse of it. I had a <clears throat> couple starts in 84 and then a call up in 85 and uh, ultimately got traded uh, in September of, of 85. But uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the ship was starting to, to kind of wobble a little bit um, with, with Billy in 85 when I was there. And, and I've told you the story a number of times when I got called up. Um, he didn't even. Um, admit that I was there you know guys normally when you get called up the manager would call you into his office and and welcome you and you know here's how I'm going to use you or not use you or you know whatever it is Joe Madden would call a guy in and say just try not to suck try to get him to relax but Billy didn't acknowledge my my presence so I wasn't even listed on the in, in the bullpen guys the extra guys when the game started my my first day in the big leagues um or the, the year excuse me 85 when when Billy was managing and um so I had to tell Gene Michael, I said, hey, Stick, I'm not even on the card. And you know, he scribbled my name on there. So there's no chance I was going to be used. And I did not know Billy was aware of my presence until about three or four days later when one of the writers asked him about um, a potential uh, Subway Series with the, the Yankees and the Mets because they were both having really good years. And uh, <laughs> Billy said something to the effect of, are you kidding me? So the Mets got good. And all I got was Deshays and Armstrong. It was like, yeah. <laughs> Mike Armstrong had been called up from Triple A as well at the same time. So it was like it was like this brief moment where I'm like, all right, Billy knows I'm here. Um, That's so that was, good. Yeah, it, was, it was a different different time. And and Brad, you know, again, you, you talk to so many interesting guys and and guys who had great big league careers, guys who had short careers. Uh, probably the common thread is when they were you know 14 and 15, they were all the best player in the city and in the state in which they played. But do you think that the identity of some of these guys is kind of stuck in what happened once they got to the big league level, you know, Jaime Kokenauer, uh, Randy Reddy, um, you know, guys who had big league careers, but didn't have the the 17 year, you know, close to hall of fame type career. Did you sense any regrets from, from guys like, like, like those, or was it more that they were just proud that they got there? No, I don't. I didn't sense any regret. In fact, someone I would say that the one anomaly in the pack is Kokenauer, who had the shortest career. You know, just four years with the Brewers, and not a lot of success. Um, and he was very open about saying that he he never quite felt like he fit in. He was he he didn't feel like he, or he knew that he wasn't cut from the same cloth as a lot of his teammates. And that was probably what was holding him back. And that he, you know, he had the, he had the incredible physical talent, but he would talk about how he was amazed at how these other guys could, you know, strike out four times or get their head bashed in on the mound. And then immediately kind of let it go and forget about it. And that he was unable to do that, you know, that he had a really hard time, um, you know, just, 
kind of being in the present moment and forgetting about what just happened. Um, and so, but, you know, so even though Kokenauer struggled the most out of all the guys in the pack, he's probably the most well-adjusted guy in life <laughs> in that of all the guys that I met, I mean, he had a college degree when, you know, the day he stepped off the, the mound, went right into a really nice white collar job uh, at an accounting firm, now has this beautiful house on a lake in Arkansas, um, and and seems like the happiest, really. So, you know, you can say what you want about the importance of success in baseball, you know, even for guys that play a long time, baseball is just a small fraction of their life. And so I would say that, you know, Kokenauer, it's kind of that tortoise and the hare idea about um, when you look at the whole picture. And you were a uh, particular fan of Don Carmen, correct? Yeah. Did you, did you know him, Jim? Yeah, I knew, I knew Don a little bit. Yeah, he was, um, he was my favorite as a kid. I mean, I was a weird kid in that my favorite players were not the stars. Um, you know, I had a whole collection of Don Carmen cards, and I wrote him a birthday card as a kid trying to get his autograph. And, you know, I, had, you know, <laughs> I remember going to this, you know, you go to like a, a collector show, and they would have all these plaques made of all the star players. And I would say, why, why? I want a plaque that says Don Carmen. And so I would have like a custom-made plaque made that had Don Carmen's nameplate. Um, and then he ends up, you know, he's one of the players in the pack. And so that, you know, to me, that's really serendipity. Yeah, well, also kind of the highlight of the book in that uh, who he turns out to be, which I, I had no idea what kind of guy he was going to be. Um, but such a an exceptional guy in all ways. Um, and I was I was just stunned at how much I ended up having in common with him. Um, as like, as I got to know him and again, just like I was saying with Jaeger, even more so Carmen, I mean, within an hour of meeting him at the zoo in Naples, Florida, he's telling me about his father being abusive and, you know, these really deep, you know, really, um, personal things. And it was, it was surreal to be sitting across from your childhood hero, having him, you know, tear up and get emotional in front of me. And he was a, he was a very funny guy, what I recall when he played. He was very quippy, yeah. great with the one. Yeah, I mean, because he's a guy that he just he's he sees everything a little bit differently, and he's just kind of a he's kind of a has that kind of maverick or kind of iconoclastic view of things. And so he, yeah, a very good sense of humor. Um, uh, that's that's you know was a big part of uh, <clears throat> his persona. I assume Dan and Brad, you've both read uh, Ball Four. Uh, it's been a long oh, yeah. time since I have, and I, I probably should reread it uh, once a year. Uh, Jim Bouton's uh, really groundbreaking book, uh, essentially chronicling uh, the 69 season uh, in Seattle before the pilots moved to, to Milwaukee. How, how important, Dan, was that particular book? And, and I do think it is interesting that it was written at the dawn of that decade, right? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I don't think that book could have been published even five years earlier. I mean, uh, Jim Brosnan uh, wrote a couple of interesting uh, similar books in the in the early '60s uh, about you know life as a, as a pitcher in the big leagues. But it's you know a lot of the the racier, grittier, um, less. Uh, you know, uh, family friendly things were certainly left aside, but also, um, you know, I, I think, I think Bouton's book really, aside from kind of showing that, uh, ballplayers are, you know, not, uh, you know, not necessarily the kind of, uh, faultless all American idols that, uh, they were presented to be, uh, I think what was really interesting and ultimately very uh, important about Bouton's book was that it showed how, you know, the, the disparity between the salaries that the stars were making and that all the other guys were making and, 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 and the way that, you know, they, they kind of went from year to year, uh, you know, one season contract to one season contract. Um, that, you know, was not, uh, I mean, that, that really plays into what we, we wind up seeing with the, uh, you know, with the strike in 72 and the, the lockout in 76 and the ultimate, you know, 
a full-scale free agency that we see for the first time at the end of 76. Like this is all sort of, you know, stirring the pot that would result in in much more equitable uh, pieces of the pie for, for uh, major league ball players. So Len, two things, if I might. Um, yeah. I've been, I've been reading a great book called Bowden that just came out by Mitch Nathanson, which is a biography of Bowden. And I think it reads as a great prequel to Dan's book, Stars and Strikes, because um, it, you know, it kind of sets the stage for all the themes that Dan was talking about. And secondly, I wanted to say um, thank you to Dan. You know, Dan, we've corresponded and we never actually have, have talked or met in person. But um, when I was first starting the, the plan for Waxpack, it was books like Dan's that I, that gave me the, the faith that it w- I could actually get it published because oh, that's great. You know, when I saw your read your book uh, and I remember reading the acknowledgments and like, oh, who was Dan's agent and who was the editor? And like you're, it was sort of like a proof of concept that that books about these guys in this era could get published. And so, I, you know, you kind of blazed the trail for me. So thank you. Oh, well, my pleasure. And I have to say that, well, I didn't I didn't have didn't rack up quite as many rejections as you uh, for Big Hair and Plastic Grass. I, the, there was a lot of like, wow, the 70s were a long time ago. Who's going to want to read this book? And, you know, just <laughs> things that would like have me pounding my head against my desk. Like, oh, the 70s. That's when Don Mattingly played, right? Like, no. So well, the, you know, so so I, I completely uh, applaud your your persistence, and I completely feel the pain of of what you went through because yeah, it's it's uh, it can be a really soul crushing experience to try to uh, uh, get a baseball book published that's a little bit uh, or even a lot uh, outside the box. With the, with the success of Stars and Strikes, Dan, did did you get uh, were people suggesting you do a book on the 80s? Oh, yes. Well, with both Big Hair and Plastic Grass and Stars and Strikes, there was like, like, when are you going to do one for the 80s? Uh, yeah. I still get that probably about once a week. And, and you know, and the sad fact of the matter is, and, and, and I tell this to anyone who wants to write a baseball book or a book on anything, really, it's like you have to write about what you love. That's because right. it's so time consuming, right. uh, both in the research, the writing and, you know, the promotion that like you better this you better love this with every fiber of your being right. and the, and the sad fact of the matter is i don't love 80s <laughs> baseball it do, it doesn't right. even interest me so the idea and and i don't really love the 80s and what the 80s were in america which is a big part of how i view the game so like to to go back and and write about this period in the game, I would have to write about this period of uh, America and American culture and American music. And, you know, I just don't want to wade into that pool. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to write about Wang Chung for 5,000 words, but. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, or, you I, know. I, I, I'm glad you said that because I get asked in almost every interview, am I going to do a sequel? And for the same reason, I, and people may be disappointed, but like I had the same reason, which is like, I would not have the same passion and love trying to do a pack of 87 tops because you know the idea is has been done the novelty is gone and it's not something that i would have my whole heart into so i totally get that when you tore into these packs from 1986 did you eat the gum yeah actually i wrote about that and you know in in exquisite detail about how (laughs) how painful that was but i felt like it it's uh, it's a right. It was a rite of passage, you know, and then actually what was kind of cool was I the book opens and closes with the people. I actually tracked down the employees who who literally made and manufactured the, the gum and the cards in 1985 at the factory in Tops uh, for Tops. And I was able to kind of get them to walk me through the whole process of how they made the gum and how they made the cards. Wow. And uh, it's really it's really cool to, when you when you hear that backstory. I can see when the movie's being made, you're chewing the gum and then the, the grainy picture and the flashback. And then we start, we go back to 1986 and it starts all over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, by the way, uh, if you want to dive into Big League Chew, uh, that would be another good thing to do from that era. Um, Rob mm-hmm. Nelson, you guys know that name? He, uh, he and I believe Jim Bowden, right? Uh, kind of yes. teamed up to create Big League Chew when they were in Portland. Uh, and if, if people listening have not seen uh, the Battered Bastards of Baseball, it's about a seventy-five minute Netflix documentary 
Uh, it's absolutely terrific and kind of sums up 70s baseball, even though it's at the low minor league level. Independent ball, the whole deal, it's it's great. Brad, we'd be remiss if um, before we finished our conversation, I didn't uh, put you on the spot a little bit since you put a lot of uh, former players on the spot. And you wrote about this stuff pretty explicitly in the book. Uh, I have had bouts of OCD, probably not clinically uh, so, but um, I, I've dealt with a very similar issue that you talked about. Um, how are you doing with it? And how did that affect positively or negatively your journey? Yeah, well, the, um, you know, as people ask me like, oh, are you, you know, did you, did you cure your OCD? Are you over it? And I say, well, as long as my head is attached to my shoulders, I will always have OCD. It's not, you know, you don't, it's not mm -hmm. something you get rid of. It's, it's like, it's like, a, it's a condition like diabetes that you manage. Um, but I, I would say that um, I, I have the tools and the toolbox to know how to manage it so that it's not disruptive in my life. Um, and I wanted to include that in the book, <clears throat> number one, to raise awareness, <clears throat> excuse me, around what OCD actually is, because, you know, it's often just portrayed in this comedic way on TV with, you know, checking locks and washing your hands and stuff. And it's really just an anxiety disorder that has to do with, you know, how we, how people with OCD respond to irrational thoughts and the compulsions and rituals they get into. Um, and I thought there was also this interesting parallel between, uh, or, you know, OCD being an anxiety disorder is just about fear you know how do you manage fear and that is a theme that all baseball players have to deal with at a very high level because it's a game where there's more failure than success and so if you're not if you're not well equipped to know how to manage fear then you're not going to be very successful in baseball so i thought that was a nice kind of parallel to go with absolutely uh jd anything uh from you finally for Dan and or Brad? No, I, well, I, the, the one question I had is we, as we went along and you guys were talking about the process and, and being rejected, I'm just curious uh, as a writer, uh, how does that work? When do you go to the publishers? I mean, how far along in the process are you when, when you start reaching out to publishers? Well, I mean, it, it really depends on the book. I, I For Big Hair and Plastic Grass, it was really more, um, I'd done a lot of research but hadn't you know, I'd written a couple of sample chapters to to send along with the proposal, but I hadn't, I wasn't going to do the full book until I had, you know, at least some level of uh, confidence. <laughs> yeah, that there there was a deal involved, and then with Stars and Strikes, thankfully, Big Hair and Plastic Grass did well enough that, you know, that that my publisher just said, "What do you got next?" and and uh, and I knew I'd always, you know, while writing Big Hair and Plastic Grass, I knew that the 76 season really was crying out for a book. So so that was thankfully pretty easy. Yeah, for me, it's, um, you know, the biggest issue that I faced was um, the lack of what they call platform. So I think it's gotten harder and harder in recent years to 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 break into book publishing and to get something published. And I had written a lot about a lot of articles and had been published a lot uh, for shorter stuff, but more in science because I'm a biologist. Um, and so, uh, you know, when I was when I first pitched the idea, I, I hadn't. Well, I guess you know, I, I actually was advised by someone to take the road trip before trying to pitch the book which I did. And then uh, when I was pitching the book to editors, I didn't have the whole thing written. I had just, you know, I, but I knew the, I knew the story framework. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and the reason why, I mean, what I was told in all those rejections most commonly was, oh, it's a great idea and it's great writing, but you know, you don't have a, a giant following on Instagram or Twitter. And which was really demoralizing and frustrating because they're basically being told like, well, there's nothing you, you know, you're not a celebrity, so you, you, we're not going to publish your book. Yeah. I mean, I, I, Big Hair and Plastic Grass was being pitched before social media was as big a thing, but I definitely got the like, well, you know, you know, you're not Bob Costas, who's going to care what you have to say about baseball. Right. And that's the other thing is that, you know, I was talking earlier about how I'm a character in the book. 
that was another thing that people were like, no, no one wants, you know, no one cares about you or, you know, why should we read about Brad Baluchin? Um, and so, uh, I, I mean, I knew that the, that the structure and the style I was going for was sort of really ambitious and kind of unorthodox for a baseball book. Um, but I just needed someone to take that chance. And, you know, my, my thought was always, you know, how do you ever discover new voices if you never take a, a risk on somebody? Um, sure. So I'm, you know, I'm grateful that ultimately I was able to, to get it done with University of Nebraska. I, I got to tell you both, <clears throat> I think your books would not have resonated with me as much had they been written uh, from more of an insider's perspective. Uh, to, to, to me, you know, whatever the percentage is, Brad, whether it's, you know, 60% of it or whatever the enjoyment I got out of your book was the unorthodox methods you had to use to get to certain players. Look, uh, I know someone who knows Carlton Fisk really well. And if you had emailed me, if we knew each other and you said, hey, I'm trying to get to Carlton Fisk, I'm not guaranteeing you that I could have gotten you in there. Right. But I could have talked to one of his best friends on the planet who could have very easily said, just do this. But right. that... That's not the point, <laughs> right? Right. That's a good, yeah, well said, yeah. And, and, and Dan, you know, I think that the 30,000-foot view of a decade like the 70s is hugely important because you tie in, as, as we said at the beginning of this interview, all the other things that were happening in the country. And to just talk baseball and nothing else. You know, the hairstyles in particular, uh, uh, artificial turf, uh, the all-purpose stadiums. I mean, all of that stuff is, is you know, the, the, the inner cities, um, Detroit, uh, New York, which is a very different uh, era in New York City history in the 70s. I think you paint that picture incredibly well, and it would have been Thank difficult you. if it were just from a baseball perspective. Yeah, I mean, and or or even from a perspective of you know the the I mean when Big Hair and Plastic Grass came out, that was sort of like right around the time of the the rise in uh, sabermetric analysis, you know, which is which is all very cool, but it's you know it's not my bag, baby. And and <laughs> and as I say in the 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 uh, the introduction to the book, you know, if if you're looking for like extensive number crunching about you know, on base percentages and and war and and all that. This is not your book, but if you want in depth analysis of Raleigh Finger's mustache and Oscar Gamble's afro, then you're in the right place. Exactly. Well, I commend both of you. Uh, uh, the two books in particular we've talked about. Um, I uh, did the audible version, and you both read the books, which I I think is really cool uh, to put your literally your own voice uh, in the narrative and. Uh, Last thing, we're just going to let you guys uh, tell us where to find you and any projects coming up in the future. Brad, you go first. Sure. If you just go to waxpackbook.com, you can get all the links to where to get the book. Um, it's pretty much available you know, wherever books are sold. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at waxpackbook. And uh, yeah, no, um, you know, no projects immediately. I mean, I think just even, I mean, for one, I, I, I'm enjoying the process of promoting Waxpack, but also, you know, the kind of reporting and writing that I do, you, you couldn't even do right now with the pandemic. I mean, it's, you know, just out of the question. So I'm just kind of enjoying the ride right now and then uh, see down the line. Dan? Well, I'm at uh, bighairplasticgrass.com. Uh, you can also, also uh, find me on uh, Facebook, there's a Big Hair and Plastic Grass page, and uh, on Twitter at Big Hair Plastic Grass. Uh, but I'm uh, currently working on, uh, oh, and I should say my books, uh, Big Hair and Plastic Grass and Stars and Strikes, are both available from all uh, all areas you can find uh, books, as well as Big Hair and Plastic Grass is in a uh, audiobook format, uh, as as Len you mentioned. Uh, but I am currently working on a book, uh, which will be out next spring via Triumph Books, um, with Ron Bloomberg, who was the first designated hitter and, uh, member of the Yankees for most of his playing career. And it's called The Captain and Me on and off the field with Thurman Munson. It's mm. a memoir of their friendship, which was very much an odd couple kind of friendship. And it's, uh, filled with hilarious and very insightful stories about, that era of baseball. So 
as we say, it's uh, very much in my wheelhouse. Cannot wait to read that. Dan Epstein, Brad Baluchian, thank you so much for the time, guys. We really appreciate it. It was great. Oh, thanks for having us, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, fellas. Great stuff from Dan and Brad, and I would imagine we will end up uh, selling some books here. And, you know, with uh, baseball on the horizon, but not quite here, uh, I would think the baseball book sales are going pretty well in general, J.D. Yeah, I would think uh, people are, are kind of hungry to uh, stay in touch with uh, with our game. And uh, I think both those guys have done well with their books so far, and hopefully they'll continue to sell. But I couldn't help but, um, as we were talking to them, uh, images were popping into my mind, right? Um, uh, whether it was the 70s, and I could see those games between the Yankees and the Dodgers in the World Series. I could see Linda Ronstadt in center field singing the anthem at Dodger Stadium. And, and with Brad's book, you know, he mentions Don Carmen. And I can you know, picture Don pitching for the Phillies. And I, I love the fact that uh, his, his fandom wasn't uh, based on star players, but he loved Don Carmen and he loves kind of the underdog type player. And I'm really looking forward to the book, uh, the Ron Bloomberg Thurman Munson uh, book uh, Dan hopes to have out next year. Yeah, he seems to have a real good feel, obviously, for that era. And uh, as he said uh, in our conversation with him, he, he wants to stay in his lane. He's not going to dabble in the 80s or anything else. He's going he's gonna to stay in the 70s because it's his bag. Well, we went a little long with those guys, so save your admission for next week. We want to wish everybody a great 4th of July weekend. We want to thank Max Berman, Joe Rios, Matt Romito, Daniel Green, Big Jim Oboykowicz, Shane McGuire, and Adam Sobel. For Jim Deshays, I'm Len Casper. Subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends. We will talk to you next week on Open Concessions, presented by Toyota. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.